Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist and keenly interested in this newest project, the Lent series on the vices and the virtues. Some of the vices, you know, are not a real temptation for you, or they are because most of them are for everybody, but some of them are easier to get over than others. Maybe some of the virtues come without too much pain. Some of them come with more. That's not the case today. For today, I introduce the traditional queen of the vices, pride. Though for each and every one of us, it's not really an introduction because we're all familiar with the queen, even if we call her by different names. I also delve down to the foundation of the life of virtue, the salt of the virtues themselves that keeps every other virtue and gift from corrupting into a source of division or self-righteousness, humility. Today is Ash Wednesday, which makes today a wonderfully appropriate day to talk about our first virtue and vice pairing, humility and pride. For pride denies that we are mortal, that our bodies return to ash and dust, while humility affirms our dependence, affirms our general dustiness, our need for one another and for God. Okay, this is a lot of pressure. Let's slow down and take them one at a time. In this series, in every one of the next um, few episodes during Lent, we'll look at the vice first. Then, in traditional fashion, it's remedy, the virtue or virtues that oppose it. And a repeated warning, this is for you and me. It's not to identify your friends and enemies, although it certainly will happen, I'm sure, in your mind, but you are not to tell them unless they ask for your help in doing so. Or unless it's your job somehow, like you're their spiritual advisor. (laughs) But keep in mind, the main point is that this is for us. Pride is the desire for excellence in excess of right reason, teaches Thomas Aquinas. Augustine, in The City of God, writes that pride imitates God inordinately, for it hath equality of fellowship under him and wishes to usurp his dominion over our fellow creatures. That's from The City of God. We're meant to imitate God, to follow Christ. Pride comes when we attempt to imitate God in his authority, in his sovereignty, when we forget who we are as created, limited creatures. And pride was considered the queen of the virtues because most sins arise from pride, that self-deception about one's place, power, and importance. Okay, all this sounds bad, but how does it translate into our daily lives? This is where our medieval friends can help us. First, pride refuses to subject itself to anything. It denies that it serves anything or anyone but itself. This is a problem because we are all, in fact, subject to God as his children and his created beings. Thomas Aquinas writes in the Summa Theologiae, The root of pride is found to consist in man not being, in some way, subject to God and his rule. If you're an American, like myself, you're likely cringing at this repeated word subject or subject. It is very monarchical feeling. 
But this is the truth. When we do not acknowledge that we are subject to anything or anyone, we are incapable of learning, incapable of any kind of transformation. Pride is, in fact, the opposite of learning, learning's great enemy and great opponent. How so? In order to learn, you must first acknowledge that someone else, a teacher, a book, trainer, friend, partner, child, possesses some kind of knowledge or craft that you do not and that you cannot hope to acquire without help. So you submit or subject yourself to that person or text. You pay attention to what they say and you emulate them. Pride doesn't let you do that. Pride insists, no, I know how to do it. I don't want to ask for help. Pride also makes someone esteem themselves as greater than they are in actuality and use whatever means they can to place themselves in the best possible light. A much later teacher in the virtues, our good friend Jane Austen, writes, How quick come the reasons for approving what we like in persuasion. And similarly, Aquinas writes, a man is ready to believe what he desires very much. Pride is a kind of twisted self-love and entails an uncanny ability to mold interpretations of events, facts, and feelings to fit the desire to understand yourself as in charge or as better than someone else or just to see something that you really desire as true. Medieval penitential texts called this presumption. The medieval manual Jacob's Well describes presumption like this. Looking after reverence, to sit above, to speak first, to have the words out of another man's mouth, to take worship of the world passing all other, deeming thyself stronger, wiser, hardier, worthier than another, in believing thyself better than thou art, in not giving others credit or taking credit to thyself that really belongs to another, the grace of fortune, of goodness, of prosperity, of virtues that thou hast of God, thou thinkest that thou hast them of God for thy good works, and that thou hast well deserved them. Or else the love, worship, or riches which thou hast of God, thou thinkest that thou hast them of thy good governance and wits, not God. Proud of your might and your service, proud of your bearing and your working, proud of your honesty and your generosity and your good conditions, of your dress, your wit and eloquence, your intelligence and understanding. Whenever you have a great gift, which quite honestly is each of us, in the surpassing beauty of our createdness, there's great risk of pride, whether that gift is something interior or exterior to yourself. You start to believe that what you have, you generated, or that what you have, you received due to your own merits. Are we never then to take pride in a job well done, in hard work, in our appearance when we look nice, in a thought hard fought for on a page of writing. There is such a thing as good pride, as we know through experience and through these writers. Medieval folks help us here to discern bad pride from good pride. Thomas Aquinas is particularly helpful. Bad pride in our achievements or belongings overpasses the rule of reason. We overrate our excellence or treasure it more than another person's similar excellence. 
Good pride in accomplishments can become bad pride when it includes ingratitude or unawareness about the help you've received. There's really no such thing as a self-made billionaire. Another hint is that you don't merely value the hard work well done. You treasure your singularity in it. There's an element of comparison present that goes beyond appreciation for the good, the beautiful, and the worthy. There's sometimes a little bit of scorn, maybe a little anger or ostentatiousness, an eye towards the responses of others. The philosopher Rebecca Conendick de Young notes, which audience we seek approval and applause from yields telltale clues about our motives. This outward-looking desire for approval and appreciation was traditionally called vainglory, a word that I don't know if I've ever heard used without irony. Medieval people take it very seriously, though. All of these have roots in originally good impulses to celebrate the good we do and see and are given. But instead, we, we tend to wield it as a confirmation of our worth, even our superiority. DeYoung continues, Vainglory provides a cheap substitute for true fulfillment of the human desire to be profoundly known by another person, to be known by name for who we truly are, and to be loved just that way. Vainglory is closely related to arrogance because they both thrive on comparison, and arrogance is another species of pride. While vainglory relies on praise from others that makes one feel above everyone, arrogance twists the available evidence to the same end. One's own perceived superiority in methods, in knowledge, in character. Craig Boyd writes, Conceit does not measure its own value by the opinions of others because it sees their opinions as worthless. Rather, we compare ourselves to others in ways that inevitably favor ourselves over them. Others become the means to our own value, not because they have valuable opinions, but because they themselves are less valuable than we are. Do you feel a little bit like you're getting beat while you're down? I can tell you I did writing this. It's hard to say these things aloud, to feel that level of extreme cringe recognizing yourself in some of this. Perhaps you're even feeling some contempt for yourself. So let's go now to pride's remedy, humility in this ancient tradition. We're locked in this war of overvaluing and undervaluing ourselves between pride and that self-contempt, and both are wrong. That's not always how it's been taught. Sometimes self-contempt has been praised. But the fact of the matter is, is that humility is the middle way, though it's been deeply understood throughout the years. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote the most popular account of humility in the steps of humility and pride. And he was a Cistercian monk. Geoffrey Chaucer, the famous writer of the Canterbury Tales, who perhaps you might recall reading in high school, translates Bernard's definition into English in his Parsons tale, which is the final tale of the Canterbury Tales and far less of an entertaining tale and much more of an educational a vicious and virtuous treatise. <laughs> he writes, Humility, or meekness, is a virtue through which a man hath truthful knowledge of himself, 
and holdeth of himself no price nor dainty, as in regard of what he deserves, considering ever his frailty. So humility is appropriate self-esteem, accurate self-judgment, true self-knowledge. Humility lives in that tension that we're God's beloved children, infinitely valuable, wonderfully made, richly endowed with gifts and beauty, and that we're mortal, created from the dust, limited in our powers of intellect and strength, failing often, needy all the time. Practicing humility does not consist of hypocritical groveling or hiding your gifts. It aligns with honesty. The reason why humility often sounds harsher than it really is, is that in reality, let's be honest with ourselves, it's a lot harder for us to acknowledge our failures and limitations than our strengths and our victories. We're always drawn to imagine ourselves as more gifted, more powerful, and more deserving or at the very least, more righteous and justified in our behavior than we are in reality. If pride is that little voice which excuses all your behavior is justified, humility is the voice which persistently seeks to learn, am I really? Is that truthful? And the word humility is used confusingly in our society. We watch professional athletes say things like, I'm so humbled when we saw them taunt their opponents earlier. Or we see politicians speak proudly of their humble origins and turn around the next minute and sell out to corporate or party interests. It's no wonder we often associate the word with false humility, with hypocrisy. This is because we often confuse humility with outward action or circumstance. More accurately, humility is a kind of cognitive and affective habit that influences every part of our actions and way of being in the world. In other words, it consists of both a heart attitude and a mind attitude that reflexively seeks to remember one's own spiritual, moral, and physical dependence on God, on other people, even on circumstance. Like I mentioned earlier, no one is self-made. How do we cultivate humility? What does that even look like? Many of the penitential manuals offer us something that seems awful and medieval in the worst possible way. They try to tell us about the gift of fear. Ew. No thanks. Such a doctrine has been poorly applied over the centuries. Think the Puritan cleric Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, used to frighten college freshmen in rhetoric composition classes for time immemorial. Think the medieval penitential manual, Jacob's Well, that I quoted earlier with it, and it has all these oozy pits that you might fall into, and it tells you, think, but thou amend thee, he shall damn thee in endless pain. Or here's another hot one, thou art a sack of dung. I think, I hope, one of the gifts of our culture, which also has many things that are not gifts, but this one I do think is a gift, is that we as a church are getting better at not hating the bodies that God created good and also trusting that Jesus loves us and wouldn't have died for us thinking we are sacks of dung. 
but I do stigmatize fear. I'm afraid of my own fear. What can we take from this? How can medieval people help us? Is this fear truly a gift? Julian of Norwich helps me to more reflectively consider the gift of fear and its use as a weapon against pride. She notices four kinds of what she calls dread, fear. And while these dreads may serve some limited purpose, they're not truly gifts, nor are they ultimately holy. The only dread that truly pleases God, she writes, is something she calls reverent dread. She describes it as soft. And paradoxically, the more you have it, the less you feel hampered by it. This dread we may better understand as awe or deep respect. Julian sees it as what one naturally feels and owes to the Lord of creation, the majestic father of lights. It's probably like the feeling one would have around a blue whale or an active volcano. Careful, careful, we say in adoration, rejoicing in the giant power that we've witnessed, suddenly aware of our own smallness and the fragility of our bodies. And our awareness of that smallness and fragility leads us to embrace our Father Protector. Julian understands this reverent dread as a path towards the habitual practice of humility. She writes in chapter 73 of her showings. All dreads, other than reverent dread, that are proffered to us, though they come under color of holiness, they are not so true. That dread that maketh us hastily to flee from all that is not good and fall into our Lord's breast as the child into the mother's bosom, with all our intent and all our mind, knowing our feebleness and our great need, knowing his everlasting goodness and his blissful love, only seeking him for salvation, cleaving to him with secure trust, that dread that bringeth us into this working, it alone is kind and gracious and good and true. Remember, you are God's children, weak, limited, frail, and beloved by this indescribable, ultimate, holy presence. Such reverent dread doesn't prevent us from approaching the presence. It helps us to seek God. It reminds us with knowledge of who we are and who God is. Medieval people understood children as the ultimate exemplar of humility. For children, unlike the prideful, are eager to learn, eager to soak in knowledge, unafraid of their ignorance. They know they're ignorant, but it doesn't bother them. They persist in discovery. They submit to their teachers. Children also show us holy pride, a pride without comparing or denigrating others, one that is true delight in their handiwork and their hard work. My preschooler, in great delight, shows me his name that he's worked so, so hard on. Clumsy letters march down the side of the page, and he's proud that he's labored so hard and produced, what a marvel, his own name. I, his mother, am so proud of him. The work goes up on the fridge to rejoice over. And then the next minute, he asks for help working on his ABCs 
or more unfortunately for me, perhaps wiping his bottom. Because he's written his name, he does not take it for mastery of the world, or rest on his laurels, or understand that he's a superior four-year-old to other four-year-olds. This too is why humility is understood as the root alongside charity of all the other virtues. Aquinas writes that if the life of virtue were a building, humility would be the foundation, sunk into the ground and providing stability for each other virtue. All other virtues are built upon that acknowledgement that you by yourself are not the master of the universe, that you're not perfect, but are needy, limited, and loved. Without this acknowledgement, anything good you do can easily become a source of division. Who hasn't seen this happen in real time? either in yourself or in someone close to you. Humility can also be misunderstood or misapplied because it has a checkered past. It's been a virtue abused by those in power, commanded by those in charge to those beneath them, laying like a heavy burden on women or on people of color or on actual children. Rather surprisingly, medieval people can help us here as well. For they understood that our lot in life partially determines what kind of vices are challenges for us and what kind of virtues are especially difficult. Pride, the queen, is a struggle for everyone. But someone in a position of power or wealth is going to be more easily led into the snares of pride because it's easier for that person to forget their dependence, their littleness, their true need. Medieval literature like Dante's Inferno or Chaucer's Canterbury Tales have countless examples of lords, cardinals, and bishops as models of corrupt pride. So while historically, humility has been heavily demanded of women or people of color, in reality, the far greater risk of pride was to the folks at the pinnacle of the patriarchal society. History certainly speaks clearly in retrospect. What could this mean to us today? We might cast this risk for pride into terms like this. If I'm considered successful in my field or in authority over people at my job or reasonably comfortable in regards to money, or if historically my ancestors have been in a position that rules over other people and have written the annals of history, I should consider myself at a particular risk of pride and in need of extra awareness and practice of humility. This list includes many Americans, including myself. It's almost as if you discovered that your family carries a gene that makes you prone to cancer. You would certainly change your habits if you discovered this. You would go to the doctor on a more regular basis. You would ask more questions wear sunscreen, and so on. You would live with a different awareness of risk and of healthy choices for you. The worst part of medieval humility is its insistence on the degrading, disgusting, filthy nature of humanity. Many medieval authors call upon the reader to despise herself, to recognize the foul seed from whence she came. Well, We all know it's not that we are not often horrible. 
look no further than the annals of history or how I last handled myself arguing with my spouse or my friend. (laughs) But overemphasizing this aspect of ourselves can lead to great damage. Humility demands that we hold together our failures and our needs with our beloved createdness to truly know ourselves. And that we remember needs are also not bad. Needs are what allows for real friendship. Needs can create spaces of honesty. Needs can be very beautiful. And what the medieval folks have got right is that we can't live in illusion about our capacity for misuse of power and gift. We're creatures of the symphony, of Gothic cathedrals, of brain surgery. And we are creatures that bomb and abandon children and let the poor starve. Everyone likes to think that they would have been the person to hide Jewish people under the floorboards during the Holocaust or would have recognized the true evil of slavery in antebellum South. But humility knows better. It recognizes there's no guarantees we would have done the right thing. What are some practices that help us learn how to be humble? I think asking is the first thing. My desires must be transformed because, quite honestly, a lot of the time I don't particularly want to be humble. I don't really want to know myself and be known in all the nitty-gritty of my life. So asking for that is the first step. And then as, as with all the virtues, we need teachers. We soak our minds in Jesus, the most humble one and in his life and death. We also have Mary to teach us humility and other figures from history and scripture. Julian of Norwich instructs us to know in your bones, to repeat to yourself over and over and over that you are God's beloved child, irrespective of what you've done in your life. The medieval penitential manuals wisely advise readers to practice silence and restraint in speech. I would add to that, particularly online. This advice is definitely situational. It doesn't mean that you should be permanently silent. It doesn't even mean that keeping your thoughts to yourself is a virtue. What it does mean is to carefully consider ideas, events, and actions before commenting or or especially before arguing about them. The medieval writers often quote Proverbs 18. He that answers before he hears shows himself to be a fool and worthy of confusion. Unfortunately, especially online, speed and aggression in speech, especially if it's witty and funny, is valued over slow and measured response. And not, again, not that aggression in speech is sometimes uh, deeply required because it is, but humility calls us to resist the very appealing angle of our own hot takes and to take a moment. I'm working on saying thank you for the little things as well as the big. Humility asks us, echoing St. Paul, with seriousness and joy, what do you have that you have not received Rejoice in your victories and acknowledge the help. Another tip that the medievals advise is to practice confession. If you follow a tradition of Christianity that has sacramental confession, do that. If you do not, 
practice confession with a trusted friend, spouse, or a mentor. To confess some of your ugliest thoughts frees you from their power. Admitting where we have been wrong, whether in confession or in personal apology, is a big deal and really great for cultivating that tricky virtue, humility. Finally, the medievals advise us, practice genuinely praising other people without guile or angling to get our own compliments back or to be better liked. Recognizing excellence in others helps us to recognize excellence in ourselves appropriately. And it habituates us into seeing the goodness of God's creation. That's another form of gratitude. Well, thanks for listening, friends. Next week, we'll think about love and envy, the second set of the seven capital vices and their remedies. If you'd like to see more of what I'm up to, sign up for my free Substack newsletter, Medievalish with Grace Hammond. If you'd like to see the text of this um, podcast, which I'm a very visual person and I enjoy that very much to see what I've listened to, you can go to oldbookswithgrace.com and take a look. I'm also around on Twitter. I'd love to hear your thoughts at Grace Hammond PhD and on Instagram at oldbookswithgrace. Thanks again for listening.